on this week's Arts Tonight A Life in Music, Words and Publishing The Work of Toner Quinn Nobody ever notices your work unless you make a mistake It's so unfair <laughs> Unless they see a typo nobody ever thinks of who the editor is There was a lot of experienced writers who gave me the benefit of the doubt I mean I was 25 I'm grateful for that Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight and we're talking to Toner Quinn, musician and founder and publisher of the Journal of Music, one of the finest publications on music in this country. Before we talk to Toner though, let's hear him play. When they're playing Do Me Justice. Uh, Toner, tell me a little bit about that track. That's a version of a song that Len Graham is very well known for singing. He recorded it in the 70s, I think, recorded it, that song and an album called Do Me Justice. And myself and the fiddle player Malachi Burke, uh, we were practicing together one day and uh, Malachi started just just playing a few notes from that tune and we realised, gosh, there's a lovely tune in there that could actually work on the fiddle. So we developed it and we've only ever performed it once together. So I have no idea what his version is like now because it's been a few months since we played together, but that's what my version is now. And we'll talk later about uh, your work with Malachi and, and the album you made together. But just going back to, 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 I suppose, the roots of the music for you, you know, where did, where did that playing, where did that style, where did that music come from in the first place? Um, I was sent to fiddle lessons when I was 11. I was sent to fiddle lessons with Tom Glacken, 
He used to come to our house. He's a Donegal fiddle player. And he used to come to our house and he used to teach myself and uh, my little sister and my cousin. And we would get about 20 minutes each. And straight off, it appealed to me. It appealed to my nature. I was good at, good for practising. I would often practise all my tunes before I'd even set off for school. I used to count them all up. I lost count at around 81, I think. It, it immediately uh, struck me that this is something I was very interested in. And it just, it mushroomed. Music mushroomed for me as a teenager. I didn't stop at the fiddle. I moved on to the piano. I moved on to the guitar. It became... As my son says now, it's it be, it's an obsession. So I always knew from mid-teens, early teens, that I was going to be involved in music. And I went on and studied music then in Waterford IT. And I think from really quite early on, words and music somehow melded for you. Yeah, I only realised this much later on when I'd actually started a magazine. I never really thought of myself as a writer at all. But long before music, I was writing all the time as a child. And in fact, music just replaced writing when I was a child. And then it seems the writing needed to get out again and the two came together. And um, that seems to be the creative impulse for creating the magazine deep down somewhere anyway. So, you know, here's this this boy, this youth, this young man then who who's diligent in the pursuit of music and also loves words. So it it almost seems natural that you move to creating something, a platform where you can use words to explore that larger terrain of music. Yeah, it seems natural, but it, 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 wasn't, um, it wasn't obvious to me at all. After I stu- finished studying music in Waterford IT, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I had a lot of ideas about music because I played so many different genres of music. I was passionate about classical music, Western classical music. I was passionate about contemporary uh, classical music, what was happening in the avant-garde. I, I love traditional music. I was spending every weekend in the in the Ring Gaeltacht when I was playing traditional music down there when I was studying. So I had all this music going around in my head and lots of ideas. And I loved writing as well about music, but I, I had no way of channeling it all. And there really wasn't a forum for the kind of articles that I was writing. So after Waterford, I just moved back to my mother's house in Bray and I had no idea what I was going to do. I'm the kind of person that if if I don't have a clear focus, I just keep looking until I find one because I was so used to from an early age having a clear focus about what I wanted to do. It was always very obvious to me. So to be suddenly in a situation where it wasn't obvious was a surprise to me. So I just kept searching. And there was one day which I sort of traced the Journal of Music back to this. There was one day when I just walked up to the Bray Bookshop and I just stood for ages in the middle of the Bray Bookshop looking at all the shelves and asking myself, what am I interested in? What am I interested in? And it's great because a bookshop is the kind of place where you can do that and nobody thinks you're strange. You can just stand there for ages and everybody thinks you're a normal customer. And the word ideas popped out at me. It was the only book on the shelf that had ideas in the title. It was a book by Desmond Fennell and this was a name that was familiar to me. It was his book, Heresy, the Battle of Ideas in Modern Ireland. And Desmond was someone that I knew as a child in Connemara because he was a friend of my parents. He was quite removed as a person from, from us children, so I didn't know him that well. But um, And I certainly had never read, read anything he had written before. But I picked up his book and there was an essay in that. It was called Intellect and National Welfare. And I read that and he made a connection between publishing and ideas and causing change and making things happen and creating debate. And 
suddenly I realised that's the kind of thing I wanted to do in music. I wanted to create a debate about all this music that was taking place around us in Ireland. And uh, maybe publishing was the way to go. That, that grew. And uh, I decided then within a couple of years to go and study publishing and I moved to Scotland. I, I did a master's in publishing studies in the University of Stirling. And then I came back at about, after about a year and a half and almost immediately set about starting the Journal of Music in Ireland, JMI, the Journal of Music in Ireland, as it was known then. And I'm, I mean, I'm delighted that I actually had such a clear focus. I was, I was kind of fortunate in that way. It all Well, it also sounds as if you, you, you worked to have your clear focus. It wasn't just a matter of the, the focus being there. It, it really sounds like mm. you, you worked to achieve that all the time. Yeah, it was at the back of my mind all the time, even while I was sitting in class in the University of Stirling and they're talking about international publishing, they're talking about London, they're talking about New York. At the back of my mind, I knew all the time that I was going to go back and start a music magazine because um, I was playing all the time. You know, I was still a musician, still thinking about music, still reading about music, still writing about music, but just I didn't have a channel to get all that out. We're going to hear another piece of music. Uh, Toner, what, what would you like that to be? This piece, it's two jigs. And the first one is called The Rakes of Kildare, which is a tune that was in the fiddle book that Tom Glacken gave me many, many years ago. I've, it's, I've done my own version of it, I've switched around parts, added in bits, changed the key, all those tiny things. And then the second tune is a tune that I've based on a Connemara sort of country song called Colleen Forak Hamish, which is a song I often heard growing up there. And then when I moved back with my own family eight years ago, I went down to a traditional music session in T. Hughes' in, in Spiddle. As soon as I walked in, I heard this song and I said, wow, I'm back. <laughs> I'm back in that song. And uh, so I love the melody to it. It's a song written by Padre Cohalon. And I, I, I just went home and I, I, be, I was playing it at home for years and years and years, playing with the melody, experimenting with it. And then I gradually started composing other pieces based on that song. So the second jig is, is Colleen Ford Hamish based on that song air. Let's have a listen to those two tunes. Thank you. 
uh, Toner. What were your, your, your aims and your, your passions for what became initially the Journal of Music in Ireland in, in, in printed mm. form? Um, you know, when you started out, what, what was your editorial direction there? Again, because after reading Desmond Fennell, he really introduced me through his work to the history of the little magazine in Ireland. I'm talking about Cranebag, John Eglinton's Dana, uh, the beginning of the century, Atlantis, and um, the Bell, of course, this little magazine tradition. And I was very inspired by that. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had one of those for music where traditional musicians could write about classical music and jazz musicians could write about traditional music and young composers could review the work of older composers and vice versa. And you would have classical and traditional and jazz music and popular music all on the same double page spread, to me, that, that that had the potential to to change things, to change the way we thought about music. And that's what I was interested in. So I, I literally, from the start, I had a list of all the writers. I literally, a written down list on a piece of paper of all the people I wanted to write for the magazine. And they ranged across all sorts of art forms. And then quite methodically, I just started going about it, ticking them off, contacting them, following it up. I mean, I actually wasn't very good at English in secondary school at all. But I found that I had an ability when it came to editing and communicating with writers and getting good stuff out of, it, out of them and, and knowing what I wanted. Very quickly, there was a strong response to the magazine. It was almost there hadn't been a forum for writing, the kind of writing that I was interested in on music for quite a long time in Ireland. Maybe, maybe never, maybe in, I, I don't know. But um, there was a rush of writing came out. People were contacting me all the time with essays and articles and talks and lectures that they'd given that had never seen the light of day. And uh, for the first few years, I was—I had a huge amount of material that I was able to just work with and hone and create interesting debates and pretend, present an interesting, what I thought was a fresh picture of musical life in Ireland. And was that work of editing a, a particular challenge? Because I'm sure you must have got material that needed work. And in, in shaping it, uh, I presume you actually made some pieces, as it was, gave, gave them a greater focus and strength, perhaps, in, in the context of what you're doing. Well, that's, that's really what editors do. They are behind the scenes workers. Our work is invisible. The thing I always say about editing, nobody ever notices your work unless you make a mistake. It's so unfair. <laughs> unless they see a typo, nobody ever thinks of who the editor is. But actually, editors are unsung heroes behind many books and many publications. But I had really strong writers. I mean, I was fortunate. I was really fortunate because there was a lot of experienced writers who gave me the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I was 25. I was chancing my arm. I didn't pay much, <laughs> but they were willing to give me the benefit of the doubt and give me their work. So I'm grateful for that. Tell me about some of those names, some of the people who, who wrote for you in those early days and who I suppose helped to establish the Journal of Music in Ireland as it was, as this very important publication and kind of centrepiece in, in the, the world of music publishing in Ireland. I mean, there's, there's dozens and dozens of writers. When I started publishing a composer called Patrick Zook, that was quite a turning point. He wrote an essay for me on, it was actually a book review, but it was called Music and Nationalism. And this was in 2001, 2002. This was quite, still quite a raw subject. And, you know, it was typical of me. I gave over half the magazine 
to a long essay on music and nationalism. And that seemed to be a turning point of the magazine when people seemed to sit up and take it a little bit more seriously. And in fact, in the successive issue, there was a second part to that article. And once again, I gave over half the magazine to it. But the Patrick Zook um, articles were certainly a turning point for the magazine. But Another instance, I mean, you have to be an opportunist as an editor, as a publisher. You're constantly looking for writers. You're constantly uh, listening and watching. And I often contacted a writer after just seeing a letter in the paper or hearing a line from them on the radio or seeing something they wrote in a sleeve note. And that would be a, a trigger for me to contact them and ask them, you know what you're saying there? Maybe expand on that. But there was one occasion when I was in County Clare and I was attending a weekend of talks on traditional music and it was being opened on Friday night and it was being opened by Martin Hayes and he was asked to say a few words, quite a normal thing to do and that's his home county and he was asked to say a few words um, to open the seminar. I think this is 2003, 2004. Martin Hayes was under an awful lot of pressure at that time. His music was controversial. It's difficult to believe now that he's very popular but it was actually quite controversial at the time what he was doing and he, it was almost like he used that opportunity of speaking in his home county at the launch of this Trish Music Weekend to really address a huge amount of issues and gave an extraordinary talk. He didn't speak for just a few minutes. He spoke for an hour without notes. I remember thinking, this is quite extraordinary. This is, he's making an awful lot of sense and he's covering a huge amount of issues. This is, this is obviously important here. And when I got home, it had been organised by Katie Verling of Glore. And when I got home, I rang Katie and I said, was that taped by any chance? And she said it was. And I got my hands on a tape. I had it transcribed. It was about 20,000 words. And then I spent nights, of course, I had a day job at the time. I wasn't doing the Journal of Music in Ireland full time. Uh, I spent nights and nights and nights editing it down to about 2,000, 2,500 words, what I thought would be a good you know, digestible read that people would be interested in, would, would work in the magazine. I didn't know Martin Hayes that well, but I sent him the article and he agreed to publish it with a few edits here and there. I don't think he's ever published an article, another article about his views on traditional music. So that's pure opportunism. But actually, I think we got a really important statement from an important musician at that time. And I think about a year or two later, I was actually playing in a traditional music session in the Palace Bar and Temple Bar. And a box player, when he was taking out his accordion at the beginning of the night, just signalled to me, just as he was taking out his accordion, and he flashed Martin Hayes' article to me and put it back in his case. And I realised he'd been carrying it around in his accordion case. And it was just one of those moments when I went, hmm, it's good. the writing is getting out there. This is interesting. And these are complete accidents that happen, but that's how interesting writing can get out. It, it's opportunism. Another musician uh, whose writing you published is Tony McMahon. Mm. Uh, Tony, a great box player, but in fact, as as the publication in your journal revealed, also a really, really talented writer. Yeah, and I, I was aware of how brilliant Tony was as a writer of on traditional Irish music. Uh, as a writer on music, more than a writer, a speaker on music, because I had worked for him many years ago on his programme, The Blackbird and the Bell. Uh, it was one of my first jobs after college. Just a short few months I was working with him and he used to talk about music. I remember there was one evening he stayed at, we stayed at very late. He was convincing me why he didn't like the music of David Bowie. And he used, just used the most extraordinary, profound arguments. And I, I listened to him talk about music and I said, that I've never heard 
anyone talk about David Bowie like that in a really interesting way, not in a derogatory way. Um, so he was always on my list. I always wanted to get Tony to write and I would contact him regularly and say, you know, I would send him every single copy of the magazine and say, will you write something? How about writing this? How about writing that? What about this? You know, because he was very opinionated, but he said, no, my head is empty. I can't write. I can't write. I can't write. So I had more or less given up. And then I think it was January 2009 when Obama was inaugurated. And the day after, suddenly my phone rang. It was Tony McMahon. And he told me he was so inspired by Obama and that entire campaign and the entire movement that he wanted to write. And he started writing nonstop and sent me drafts and drafts and drafts of material. And we worked for worked on it together over, oh, several weeks, maybe months, uh, just piecing together three articles that were a good encapsulation of his views, his history, his experiences. They were extracts from an autobiography, which still hasn't been published. And I don't know if it's even finished, but I was really glad to have that um, opportunity to finally get some writing from him. And I, I knew that it was having an impact when musicians would come up to me and start quoting the first line from it. And I'll read the first line just so you can hear it, um, because it's it's just a great opening line to a, to an article. If ever you stroll down Capel Street with your arse to the Liffey and your belly to Bolton Street, you will come to the smallest shop in Dublin, the last but one on your left. The horseshoe at number 85 is a Polish bread shop today. The facade in buttercup yellow and the inside awash with the smell of freshly baked bread. But from 1946 until 1989, it was where the late John Kelly from West Clare ran a small business reared a family and held court to three generations of traditional musicians. And that's not the kind of line that you would expect in a typical article about music of any genre, but that's the way he started off. It's so vital. It really captures a place and time and an atmosphere and, and, and a sense of music. Yeah. I just think, you know, the debate across different musical forms in the journal, you know, across um, dra- jazz and trad and classical and new classical and so-called world music and whatever, you know, that in a way almost seems to echo this trend in music where people are no longer afraid of, of mixing and crossing mm. and uh, and meeting in with with open minds perhaps more than ever before and i think we see more and more of that in ireland as well i mean do mm. you think you were capturing a zeitgeist of a sort that anticipated what what would come i i think we were certainly part of the zeitgeist that was happening and it was the digital age was uh, speeding that up it was happening any but it's the digital age once you had itunes youtube that really speeded it up but definitely, I mean, I thought you think you've got an idea that nobody else has, but actually it was just part of a wider movement. That was good for the Journal of Music in Ireland because we could ride that wave and people go, yes, that's actually interesting now. We're interested in this, this cross-genre thing, that could work. That's good. Again, at the moment in Ireland, there, there seems to be a blossoming of new composition, mm. new composers and this new generation of composers coming to the fore and and a real strength and confidence in in new music in particular, I think, in, in this country. Mm. Um, are there particular and discernible reasons f- for that, in your opinion? When I studied music, I didn't actually know that many people who were also passionate about contemporary Irish classical music. And it was a real pleasure for me when I started the the JMI to discover that actually there was. There was a group, a group of people, more or less my own age, who appeared in Dublin 
end of 90s, early 2000s. And I think it was the end of emigration. I mean, the boom had its downside, but the end of emigration was a wonderful thing. And it meant that these young people stayed and um, they composed and they mixed and they created bands and they collaborated. And uh, the, the scene in Dublin in the noughties, as it's called, was really, really exciting. And it still is. That's one of the fascinating things about the crash, the economic crash. I, I really thought that it was going to send all these young composers and musicians abroad again and our scene was going to deflate. But it didn't. It's still vital. It's still vibrant. It's still fascinating. It's still wonderful music. It's, it's the only thing that kills me about I live in Spiddle, County Galway now, but I used to live in Dublin. The only thing I miss about Dublin is really the live music. It was great live music in Galway, but you're spoiled for choice in Dublin and there's so much exciting music happening there. Speaking of exciting music, uh, I want to listen to the Crash Ensemble performing a piece by Andrew Hamilton. Mm. And um, I think you you were very taken by, by this piece and by the Crash Ensemble. Yeah, Andrew Hamilton is one of that generation of composers that I was talking about. And I was at the premiere of this work in 2011. Uh, Crash Ensemble premiered it. And I was, I was astonished, I have to say. I was amazed at the craft of his writing. I was amazed at the tension and the anxiety he created in the music. And that was uh, a time in Ireland when there was a lot of blame, tension, anxiety and fear in the country. And although this work, I mean... You know, this was written in Berlin. He didn't set, set out to anticipate that, but it does seem to capture something of that time. Let's have a listen to Andrew Hamilton's music for people like art. What is what? What is what? Andrew Hamilton's Music for People Like Art played there by the Crash Ensemble. Tony Quinn, um, the, the Irish World Academy of, of Music and Dance in Limerick um, celebrated 20 years of existence a, a little while back and we marked that indeed on this programme. An institution like the World Academy seems to be crucial in terms of honouring the significance of music in Irish life and culture and also giving it a context in, in a wider world. I presume that those sorts of changes in in your span of, of what's been happening are very significant. I mean, it's very significant, really. I mean, I went through third level music as a traditional musician and it wasn't really a pretty place in the 1990s to be a traditional musician doing essentially a classical music degree. I think giving young traditional musicians the opportunity to actually go and really focus on their music and for it to be seen as on a par with every other genre. That's significant. That's how you build confidence in a music community. So yeah, you know, I'm very interested in what they do. It definitely seems to me to be pioneering work. Coming back to um, 
the JMI and its transition into an online publication, the Journal of Music. Um, something was changing, it seemed, when social media reached critical mass around 2008. And um, the larger debate around so much cultural output seemed to be moving online then. Mm. Did this begin to influence what direction the journal would take? Uh, it did. Being in print is, is wonderful, but it's very expensive. And I felt that once social media reached critical mass in around 2008, that something shifted, that before that we were able to not keep the debate within a certain magazine, but if somebody wanted to contribute to a debate, they would go to your magazine and write a letter or something like that, or they would write an article. But now everybody was a publisher. They could go online and say what they wanted to say online. And what we were doing, our aim was always to publish and create debate and influence thinking and contribute to thinking on music. And the greatest debate on the planet had just started online through social media. And there was no way I was going to ignore that. The Journal of Music as well, it, it, had, a, it had a readership in print of a couple of thousand people. Online, over the last year, we've had over 130,000 readers. So that was just too tempting for me to ignore. So I moved the magazine online in 2010. And it has been fascinating in many ways, because of course, you can't, you can't, of course, just recreate what you were doing in print and move it online. You actually have to start from scratch. You also have to create something that's sustainable online. And this is a, an issue that's facing the entire media world. And I'm really glad that we are actually in the thick of it and actually you know, experimenting and trying to come up with new ways of doing things because now is the, now is the time to do it. I, I didn't want to wait until I, I wanted to jump rather than be pushed, if you know what I mean. Uh, I wanted to get in there and experiment and see how we can do it. So, I mean, the, arts, the Journal of Music has been supported by the Arts Council for many years, but you can't rely on that forever. You have to build a sustainable business for music journalism if you want it to go on. It's too precarious to rely on arts funding all the time. So that's what we're in the process of doing is on, I mean, you can build a sustainable business with 130,000 readers. It's difficult with a couple of thousand readers. So that's what we're doing at the moment. We're just building a new online platform for the kind of music journalism that we've always published, that we're passionate about. Um, I mean, it's, it's not that we're building it, it's there now, where it's, it's live and it's um, bringing in tens of thousands of readers and it's, it's going great, I have to say. I presume it's, it's possible to be more ambitious, you know, as, as you potentially reach a, a worldwide readership and audience with, you know, click with the window. It's, 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 it's extraordinary. I mean, <laughs> it's very the language, tempting, The language evades us in a sense because it's, it's also, it has changed so rapidly and so profoundly that and it's as if we are constantly trying to reinvent how we look at things. I mean, that... You've, hit, you've put, put your finger on it there with the word reinvent. We are really, from a point of view of publishing, I mean, I, I lecture in publishing as well in NUIG. From the point of view of publishing, we are in the middle of a maelstrom at the moment. And it, it is, on one, the one hand, it is opportunitiesville. On the other hand, it is not for the faint-hearted because it's incredibly competitive. It's incredibly tempting to do all the wrong things for all the wrong reasons, to stick to your values and actually publish the stuff you want to publish um, is difficult when the media and the online digital world will pull you in so many different ways. So 
um, we're discovering as we're going along. But the big advantage that we have today and this big advantage that publishing has today and something that publishers throughout history have never had, which is that we can actually see what readers are interested in now, not in any intrusive sense, but we can actually see which content they're interested in reading. Uh, which content they're not interested in reading. And that helps you, that strengthens your business, that strengthens your business model. It strengthens your content. So there are a lot of advantages to being online. It can be a place where you just feel some days going, gosh, this is so huge. Where do we start? And on the other hand, uh, there's a lot of opportunity. You were at the the Web Summit a while back. I mean, Mm. it's events like that, people coming together. Are they useful? I mean, did, did you come away from that having learned anything? This is this is the funny thing. I used to be in I used to be in the print game, and now I'm going to the web so much. I mean, this is the nature of publishing and music today. Um, yeah, I went because uh, I wanted to hear new ideas on the digital world, or hear what other people were thinking, and see how it would influence my um, publishing work. But um, I mean, I found it very useful for my own publishing. There's no doubt about that. But looking at it from a musical point of view, I was struck by the narrow focus of digital services for the music world. You know, as a musician. My musical life is, it's not online, it's offline. And the digital world tends to infer behaviour from what we do online about music. If we listen to a track, if we watch a video, if we buy an album, well, then we're automatically interested in doing something related to that offline. And that's not necessarily the case. So uh, I thought that was interesting. I think it's a real opportunity for the tech world to actually try and document, to track how our chaotic, sophisticated musical lives offline. And uh, that would be really interesting. <laughs> and it also strikes me that, you know, the, the revival in vinyl, anyway, uh, almost seems to fly in the face of this you know, because um, you can't exactly, you know, turn and put on your record player and, and, and play your vinyl into the world. And, and yet, I suppose, in, in another way you can. But it, it, this links it to something you, I know you're involved in these sessions, these workshops in, in Connemara, mm. which I suppose are about, again, a new generation of people engaging with music and finding their voices and finding the, 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 the music outside of that digital pressure that I think can can become almost unbearable for many people. I do. I am involved in, it's a weekly traditional music session for young children in Connemara. It's about music, of course. It's also about the language. It's all through Irish. The language is under such huge pressure in Connemara. Parents are always coming together and looking to create new social outlets for their children, an opportunity to speak Irish. From a musical point of view, it has certainly been very interesting for me because I have three children. And how do you keep your kids playing music? This is something, you know, for me, I just practised. I never had to be really told to practise. I just kept at it. But a lot of people don't stick with music and that kind of troubles me because I didn't have that experience. And so how do you keep children playing music? And what we've discovered, I talk about it a lot with parents and with other musicians. And my only sort of half conclusion at this stage is that there has to be a social side to it. It can't just be about the lessons and it can't be just about the even the end of term concert. It has to be something that they do with their friends. And that is the idea behind the weekly session that we have in, in Connemara. And it's been going for three years now. Numbers are growing and my kids are still playing music. So fingers crossed. Your own music, um 
did you neglect it at all during the, the, the very intensive years of being involved with the, the, the Journal of Music in Ireland and, and now more recently uh, the Journal of Music? Mm. Um, or did you always make the time to continue playing, knowing how important it was to you? Uh, I, I definitely neglected it because I didn't realise that editing and writing uses up the same creative energy as playing music. And uh, particularly editing, I was doing a huge amount of editing and I was such a perfectionist really that the music did get neglected and it was taking up all my practice time. But the funny thing about moving the magazine online in 2010 It created Headspace because online publishing is very flexible. It's very malleable, it's very fast, it's very quick, and it's as intensive in one way. But for a period there, when I moved it online, there was a little pause in my life. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder what is going to fill this gap, you know, because I'm not really used to this kind of quiet. And it was the music. The music came back. And then the the notes floated in. It came back and I started seriously playing. And uh, I was always playing at home, but just not you know, really dedicated to it. So I started playing an awful lot and I started going out playing again and then a few concert opportunities came up and I started playing with um, Malachi Burke, who I'd often played with in the past and we started doing some concerts together and, of course, in the digital age, everything gets recorded. Um, Just, it seems part of the course at this stage. And uh, so then we had a recording. We An album was released on... The Argodis label last year. And uh, this was live at the Steeple Sessions. Live at the Steeple Sessions. So the challenge for me over the last four years has really been to keep that momentum with the music and also balance it with writing and balance it with my publishing work. And it's it's an interesting balance because they do suck off the old, the same creative juice. There's no doubt about it. We mentioned the album with Malachi Burke live at the Steeple Session. We might hear a, a tune or two from that. Yeah, these two tunes are two hornpipes. Um, the first one is a tune written by Frankie Gavin, who actually taught Malachi the fiddle. And the second tune is called, it's a well-known traditional hornpipe, it's called If There Weren't Any Women in the World.
You have a concert uh, in Dublin later in the month at the Little Museum of, of Dublin. How did that come about? That is a result of um, a long-standing collaboration with the composer Benedict Schlepper Connolly, who has worked with me in the Journal of Music since 2006. And he also runs his own company with the, another composer, Garrett Schaldice. It's called Ergodos. They put on concerts. They're a contemporary music production company and label, mainly. They're very adventurous and they insist on taking people out of their comfort, comfort zone. So they asked me to do a solo concert at the end of this month in the Little Museum, 29th of January. So it'll be a mix of traditional material, some of my own versions of traditional material. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, you've said before that it, it seemed a natural thing for you to play music in Connemara rather than in, in Bray, where you, you used to live. Uh, what I wonder, what will it be like performing in a, a Georgian townhouse in St. Stephen's Green? Well, I went to the last concert with Sean McElaine and it is an amazing setting. I couldn't imagine a nicer setting really to do a solo concert. It's dark. <laughs> There's candles. People can't see you that clearly. And they can, they can. It's a really wonderful setting. I'm um, looking forward to it. We might hear an, another piece of music now. This is my version of that song, Colleen Forak Hamish. And in this version, I use the song air and then I've written a, a faster piece in, in real time after it.
Tona Quinn there on Fiddle. Tona, thanks very much indeed uh, for being our guest on Arts Tonight and uh, for anyone who wants to look at uh, the richness that is there in the Journal of Music, go to journalofmusic.com and Tona Quinn's solo fiddle concert is part of the Santa Rita concert series taking place in the Little Museum of Dublin at 15 St. Stephen's Green at the end of the month. That's Thursday, the 29th of January at 7 o'clock. For more information, go to littlemuseum.ie. That's it from us back next week with a look at volume two of the RIA's Art and Architecture of Ireland, painting 1600 to 1900. Join us then. Till then, good night. Art Tonight was presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon in the Onloon.